Acts chapter number 18. We'll begin reading in verse number 24. It says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the Spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue with whom Aquila and Priscilla had heard. They took him unto them and expounded unto them the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures, that Jesus was Christ. In Acts chapter 18, Paul's second missionary journey comes to an end. The journey began in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Silas had left Antioch. And it's on this journey that uh, Timothy is introduced and joins the team. Uh, The vision of the Macedonian man uh, and the call to Paul and Silas to come to Macedonia occurs. The salvation stories in Philippi, the success with danger in Thessalonica, the diligent Bible students in Berea, and the memorable sermons, the memorable sermon that Paul preached in Athens. When we come to Acts chapter 18, Paul continues that journey in the city of Corinth. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, which is up to this point in his uh, his missionary efforts, was the longest that Paul had stayed anywhere. And in Corinth, Paul had much success among the, amongst the Gentiles. But after 18 months of time and ministry in Corinth. The Apostle Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem and thought it was necessary for him to get back there by by Pentecost. So Paul begins his journey back to Jerusalem with some speed. And on his way back, he stopped at a city called Ephesus. And as was his custom, he found his way to the synagogue there in Ephesus. And he began to preach about Jesus. But something unusual happened in his preaching in the synagogue at Ephesus. Unusual as it didn't occur in many other cities that he preached in the synagogue. In Ephesus, the Jews received his preaching. They were curious. They were interested in this Christ that Paul preached about. They were interested to hear more. Uh, Usually, Paul was forced out by the Jewish leaders, and then he would begin his ministry with the Gentiles in that city. But that is not the case in Ephesus. The Jews were so interested in his message that they actually requested that he stay in Ephesus and continue to teach and preached to them. But Paul had already determined that he was going back to Jerusalem. And whether you think Paul was right here is irrelevant to tonight's message, but I'll go ahead and tell you I believe Paul was, was wrong. He was not in the right in heading back to Jerusalem, in my opinion. But nevertheless, Paul tells them that he must go to Jerusalem and he leaves Ephesus. Before we get to our text, the text that we've, we've read, we find some more information about the close of Paul's second missionary journey and then as well the beginning details of his, uh, of the beginning of his third missionary journey here in chapter number 18. But the details are written in such concise fashion that it indicates that our minds should be fixated on what happened in Ephesus. That our minds should not have left Ephesus, though Paul has left Ephesus yet. So after Luke gives us some short details of Paul's trip, Luke returns his focus to Ephesus. What occurs in Ephesus after Paul has left. And we find here in our text, a man comes to Ephesus by the name of Apollos. This is the first time that Apollos is ever mentioned in Scripture, so he seemingly comes out of nowhere. 
It's apparent that he has no previous experience or exposure with the Apostle Paul, uh, or any of the other apostles for that matter. We know that Apollos would go on to be an influential figure, if not the pastor, at the Corinthian church. So we know that Apollos has a future ministry, but this is the first time Apollos ever shows up in the New Testament. And it is Apollos in this text that God uses to pick up the slack where Paul left off. And yet, Apollos' message is incomplete. It is lacking critical components. But God still uses him to stir the minds of those Jews towards Jesus Christ. And I want us to first consider briefly how God can use unusual people in unusual places at unusual times to accomplish His purposes. And then I want us to consider for most of our time this evening the characteristics of this individual that God has used in Ephesus. First of all, consider with me just how out of place this text seems. Paul has just left Ephesus. He leaves the big gap. The Jews are searching. They are interested in the message that Paul preached. But Paul leaves anyway. So what about these Jews? Are they to be left hanging? Well, so some short time later, we find that this man, Apollos, shows up in Ephesus. If you look at verse number 24 with me, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. Born at Alexandria. Now, we're not told any more about his geographical dwellings, but we're told that he is from Alexandria. Now, why would a man from Alexandria be in Ephesus? Alexandria is 850 miles from Ephesus. Would it be too much of a stretch to suggest that the reason Apollos was in Ephesus was because of the providence of God? I don't think it would be. Apollos was there because God sent Apollos there. Whether Apollos was aware of that or not, God had Apollos there to pick up the flag of the Apostle Paul. Apollos would end up being of some help to the Jews here in Ephesus, but Apollos would also get some help while he was in Ephesus himself. Now, I want you to take note of two things here uh, before we move on. You'll notice, first of all, that Apollos' doctrine is incorrect, and I'll deal with that a little bit more in, in a little bit. But just, just take note that Apollos' doctrine is incorrect and it's incomplete, and it certainly hindered his ministry. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, the beginning of Acts chapter 19, Paul is going to come back to Ephesus, and Paul has to correct the wrong doctrine that Apollos has taught in Ephesus. Apollos has moved on at that point, but Paul has to come back and he has to inform the, the men that, that Apollos has ministered to of the new birth, of the spirit baptism. They knew of the baptism of John, but they had yet to be born again. They had yet to be baptized into the Spirit of God. And so Paul, Paul had to correct them. And of course, that hindered Apollos' ministry. Apollos did not preach of Christ here in Ephesus, at least that, not, that we, not that we see it. Apollos preached of the way of the Lord. Uh, he preached of John's baptism. His ministry was hindered because of his incorrect doctrine. And doctrine is absolutely important. When doctrine is wrong, it must be corrected. When incorrect doctrine is taught, it must be corrected. It will hinder growth. It will hinder Christian ministry. So sound doctrine must be defended, and it must be taught to protect from the dangers of false doctrine. But you know what else? God still used it. Even though he had false doctrine, God still used it. He didn't have the full picture. He didn't even know that Christ had come yet, but God used him anyway. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but, but God can use someone who has false doctrine. Uh, 
I don't think I'm going to get a lot of amens on this, but you know, God can use the Catholic. He sure can. And he, he, in fact, He has. You know, God can use someone who doesn't even believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. God can use somebody that believes that we are li- living in the kingdom uh, even today. And in fact, the historical characters that we are often inspired by, a guy, take, take for instance, a guy like William Carey. William Carey, ironically, is the father of modern missions. And I say ironically because he was both a post-millennialist and he was, uh, he was a Calvinist, a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist. And yet, he's the father of modern missions. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting is not that doctrine is important. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I explicitly stated that it is. But God can use someone who is doctrinally incorrect. And the point that I, uh, the reason that I say that is because you and I ought not put God in a box. We ought to absolutely look for doctrinal purity. But doctrinal impurity is not a disqualification from God using you. And doctrinal purity is also not a guarantee that God uses you. So doctrine is absolutely important, but God can use whomever He will. So I want us to consider tonight, for the remainder of our time, the character of Apollo, the character of of this man that God used here in Ephesus. First of all, consider with me how Apollos used his talent for the Lord. How he used his talent for the Lord. Verse number 24. A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man. An, an eloquent man. Eloquence is a wonderful skill to possess. Eloquence is manifested in either writing or speaking. Usually when someone is eloquent, it means that they're knowledgeable in the subject that they're writing or speaking about. But to be eloquent is more than to be knowledgeable. Eloquence also means that you're skillful with words, you're skillful with sentence structures. You have to choose your words well, which means that you have to have a large vocabulary to draw from. An eloquent speaker would have good control of his body, knowing how to use his hands and his facial expressions to drive the point of his words home. An eloquent speaker would also have good control of his voice, knowing when to raise his voice and when to lower his voice to emphasize the message. Usually, rhetoric and eloquence are, are perceived as synonymous terms. But the difference between eloquence and, and, and rhetoric is that rhetoric is an ability uh, or, or, or skillful with words, uh, whether in writing or speaking. Eloquence combines rhetoric with purpose. Eloquence has a message, it has a purpose to speak. And here in Ephesus, Apollos has a message. He's not simply getting up and exercising his talent. He has a message to the lips. He has a message to give to those, those Jews. And Apollos uses that ability for the glory of God. Now, it's important to draw a distinction here between spiritual gifts and talent. Eloquence is not a spiritual gift. Eloquence is a, is a talent. It is something that one naturally possesses or one develops over time with much work. But it is not, it is not a spiritual gift. It can, it can enhance a spiritual gift. A preacher that has the talent, uh, a preacher who is a gifted preacher who has the talent of eloquence uh, is a rather good preacher uh, because he has that talent of eloquence. But eloquence is not a spiritual gift. Eloquence is a talent. And Apollos consecrated his talent to the Lord. Not merely a spiritual gift, but his talent. And you know, everyone in here has abilities, has natural, God-given talent. 
or uh, develop talents over time. Maybe you have the ability to play an instrument. Uh, maybe you have the natural ability to sing. You're a, uh, you are a good singer. That is a skill. That is not, that is a talent. That is not a spiritual gift. But nevertheless, you ought to use that talent for the glory of God. You ought to consecrate those skills, consecrate those talents to further God's kingdom. Can you imagine having the ability to play an instrument and, and to be able to lift that, to be able to lift up that noise, that music to the glory of God, to enhance worship, to lift His name up and to not use that for Him? It would be one thing to not use that ability for Him, but it would be another thing altogether to then use that ability for yourself. And we ought not do that. We ought to use the natural abilities, the developed abilities that we have, we ought to use them for the glory of God. Now, with eloquence, it is rather obvious how a man can use eloquence for the glory of God, through preaching God's Word. But maybe your talents are not so obvious how you can use them for God's kingdom. And I would suggest to you that you spend much time in prayer and get creative, because your skills can be used for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Get creative, and I'm confident that you can find a way to use your skills and your abilities for God's glory. Talents come in all different shapes and sizes. Some have musical ability, some have business savvy, and I would even include here, even though it's not a skill, I would include a charismatic personality. There are some people that other people are drawn to just naturally, just because of who they are and how they are. And you ought to use that. You ought to use that influence for the glory of God. Not use it for the furtherance of your own cause, but use that for God's glory. And the bottom line is, is that like Apollos, you can use your skills, your talents, to influence people positively or negatively uh, for God. You know, some skills need to be developed. Your skills may be more muted than others because you haven't developed your skills yet. You need to develop your skills. You need to develop those skills to the best of your ability so that you have something in which you can lift God up high. Develop your, develop your talent for the Lord, for the explicit purpose of glorifying God through your ability. Apollos consecrated his eloquence uh, and, 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 and his talents allowed him to convince others of the Lord's way. And that should be it. We ought to consecrate our natural ability, our natural talent, for the Lord's use. I want you to notice, second of all, that Apollos was a diligent student of the Scriptures. Look again at verse number 24. A certain dude named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Scriptures. And this is an obvious skill set that pairs really well with eloquence. When you have a might in Scripture, when you have a power with Scripture, power in dealing with Scripture, it pairs very well with eloquence, most, most obviously. And I, I believe certainly that it ought to be the pursuit of every preacher to, to develop that craft of eloquence, to develop that, that ability to speak. Certainly, that is my aim. That ought to be the aim of, of every God-called preacher. But I would much rather, infinitely more so, be mighty in the Scriptures than be eloquent in speech. Might in Scripture is infinitely more important than eloquence in speech. Yes, I'd like to be eloquent, but I'd, I'd much rather be able 
to understand, to be able to apply, and be able to, to skillfully deal with God's Word. But that should not just be the, the pursuit of God-called preachers. That ought to be the pursuit of every Christian. The ability to skillfully deal with, with, deal with God's Word. Of laymen and laywomen alike. And in fact, this skill set of being mighty in Scripture pairs with any other talent of a Christian. If you concentrate your skills to the Lord, there is going to come a time in your life where you are going to need to be able to show somebody from the Word, the Word of God how to be saved and how to live for God. So the skill of being mighty, mighty in God's Word is important for both women and men alike. Now, what is this might in Scripture? What is it to be mighty in Scripture? It's not just knowledge. It's not merely the ability to recite the books of the Bible in order. It's not the ability to recite the chapter content of every, every chapter in the Bible. It, it, it's nothing like that. To be mighty in Scripture is to be an expositor. It's to be able to explain the Word of God. And we see that from the next verse. Verse number 25, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. He was careful, precise, with his teaching, with his word. But also the description at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 28, For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. It's not just that he knew the Scriptures. It's that he could read the text, get the sense of the text, and apply it to the heart and the lives of the hearers. And if you think it's just the job of a preacher to be an expositor of the Word of God, you are sadly mistaken. Fathers and husbands ought to be knowledgeable enough and skillful enough with the Word to be able to sit down with their wives and their children and be able to read a passage, give the sense of it, and apply it to the heart and life. You ought to be able to take the Word of God. If you are a father, you ought to be able to take the Word of God and defend your beliefs and defend your convictions skillfully from His Word to your children. That is how you pass, pass on your beliefs, is, is through the exposition of God's Word. Mothers. Mothers need this ability to be able to sit down with their children and to be able to take the Word of God, be able to read it, give the sense, and apply it to the heart and the lives of the, life, the lives of their, their children. Brothers and sisters, this is essential in your relationship to your siblings. You've got to be able to take the Word and skillfully apply it to the lives of the hearers. Friends, you should be able to correct and rebuke your friends and, and, and change their course of path by the Word of God, by expounding, by expounding on the Word of God. And certainly, as a witness, you must have the ability to take the Word of God, read a passage, give the sense of it, and apply it to the hearer and, and, and the, the listener of your Word. So expositional skill, exposition of God's Word is vital to success. It's vital. But it's not just vital from the pulpit. It's vital from the house couch. It's, it's vital uh, in our relationship to one another, to, to bathe our lives in God's Word. To, to immerse our beliefs and our practices in God's Word. It requires exposition. It requires all of us to be able to expound the Word of God to each other. So exposition, being able, to, uh, being able to, to read a passage, being able to give the sense of the passage, and being able to apply it 
to the heart and the lives of the listeners. Be mighty in Scripture. But look again at verse number 25. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Fervent in the spirit. And I've seen men that were skillful orators and were excellent in spot expositors. But it's somewhat rare to find a man that is both a skillful orator, uh, an excellent expositor, and fervent in his spirit, in his, in his delivery, being passionate in his preaching. But that was Apollos. Apollos had a message. He had a message that was burning in his bosom, a message that was fixated in his heart, was fixated in his mind. That was Apollos. And fervency has unquestionable an incalculable value to the, to the listener. Fervency is always important uh, to, to show the listener that we mean what we say. The world is naturally attracted to fervency. Everybody loves to see passion, whether it's a politician uh, defending the, uh, the downtrodden and the oppressed, or whether it's a ball player that's expressing himself after scoring the game-winning touchdown. The world loves passion. The world loves to see fervency. And what makes our message attractive from a human perspective is the passion that we put into our uh, put into our message. And our message ought to be it ought to be decorated with fervency. We of all people having the gospel, the good news that can change the heart and the life of every hearer. And in fact, if they don't hear and receive the gospel, their lives will end in total and utter destruction. We of all people who are equipped with that message to decorate our message, most importantly, with fervency. But then I want you to see in closing that Apollos had a heart to receive correction. Apollos had consecrated his fields to the Lord. He was a diligent student of God's Word. But Apollos had a heart to receive correction. Look with me at verse number 25. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Attila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, the first phrase found here, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, is a distinctly John the Baptist type phrase. In Matthew chapter 3, we read, For this is he that was spoken of by the voice of the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, making his path straight. Mark says the same thing, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. So I believe in Acts chapter number 18, Luke is drawing our attention to the connection of Apollos to John's baptism. And that opinion is informed by what we just read at the end of the verse, that in knowing only the baptism of John. Now, what does it mean to know only of the baptism of John? Well, what was the message of John the Baptist? It was prepare the way for the Messiah. We read in Luke chapter 1 when the angels came to John's parents telling them about John's soon-to-be birth. The angels said, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he said, Go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the message of John the Baptist was to turn their hearts towards God, to repent, and to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. 
And I think you can, and, and the baptism of John was a way of expressing that outwardly what had happened on the heart, that repentance that occurred inwardly. So the, so, so the message of John was prepare the way for the Messiah. And I think it's rather obvious what Apollos' incorrect and incomplete doctrine was. He had yet to find out that Jesus had already come. He was preaching the message that prepare ye the way for the Messiah. Uh, he had failed to realize that the Messiah had already come and had already accomplished his purposes on earth and had gone back to heaven. So he's missing a critical component of the message. But yet he is still preaching. He, here's the critical part about Apollo. He himself has gotten his heart right. He has prepared his heart for the Messiah. He has been prepared for Messiah's coming for quite some time now. And here he is in Ephesus preaching that these Jews ought to prepare their heart for the coming of Messiah as well. Now, it's important to remember that the book of Acts is a transitional book. There is very little in the book of Acts that is complete. The, the Gospels is, is really sort of an extension of Old Testament times. We're still living uh, in, in those times. But when we come to the book of Acts, the, the focus switches from the Jew to the Gentile, or, or the focus begins to shift from the Jew to the Gentile. The focus shifts from the Jew, that Jewish nation, to the Gentile church. And all throughout the book of Acts, there are, shall I put it, awkward things that are occurring, things that, that, that seem out of place, that when we, when we pair with our knowledge of the Pauline epistles and the doctrine that we've built our lives upon, it's a little, it's a, it's a little strange, it's a little awkward, shall I put it. And in fact, uh, Paul going back to Jerusalem, I'm not going to get into it too much, but, but that's, that's an instant of transition from the law to grace. I believe Paul is going back to Jerusalem out of a, out of a Jewish custom, out of a uh, desire to fulfill a Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish ceremony. And so I believe there's, there's, there's certainly transition occurring throughout the book. And even here in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19 for sure, is a transitional chapter. Here are men in Acts chapter 19 that have heard about the baptism of John. They're called disciples in Acts chapter 19. And Paul asks them, have you, have you received the Holy Ghost since you, since, you, uh, since you believed? Of course, that's a very strange question to ask when you filter that through the times in which we live and what we, what we know and believe today. So the book of Acts is a transitional period. So, so when I say that Apollos was not born again in Acts chapter 18, one, I believe that. But two, I do believe that Apollos was, he was an Old Testament saint. That's the way to look at it. He has not rejected the gospel. He's simply not heard it. He's not been exposed to the coming of the Messiah and his ministry here on the earth is death, burial, and resurrection yet. He has no idea that it's occurred. Uh, he, he has no idea that it's historically occurred. And so when he finds that out, he's going to accept that heartily. He's going to readily add that to his message and, 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 and revise his message. But again, it's, it's a transitioning period of time. Transitioning period of time. So I want you to imagine this scene in Acts chapter 18. Apollos comes to Ephesus, and he is fervent, he is bold, he is courageous. He goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach to these Jews. And I imagine that at this scene there is a couple, Achilla and Priscilla, and they are sitting in the background. And this man gets up and he begins uh, to, to preach the scriptures. 
He begins to show them from the scriptures that the Messiah, uh, that it was foretold that the Messiah would come. Uh, the Messiah is coming, and in fact, uh, there was John the Baptist who was foretold of in Malachi that he prepared the way for the Messiah. And I imagine that as he's preaching this message, that Attila and Priscilla are saying, "Wow, here's an eloquent man. He is taking the scriptures and he is preaching to these people Jesus, and he's doing so." in a skillful way. He's obviously got a good grip on the scriptures. And I imagine that they're sitting there, you know, thinking, man, this is, this is great. And then all of a sudden, suddenly the message ends. It ends with the Messiah's on his way and you ought to prepare your heart for the Messiah to come. Then the message ends. Now, you know what you and I would have done in all likelihood if we heard that message and we were a pill and Priscilla? On our way home, we would have talked about how wrong that man was. What a heretic and how we are never going to go listen to his preaching again. Never. Never. But that's not what Attila and Priscilla did. Look with me at verse 26. began to flow speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Attila and Priscilla had heard, they took, him unto them, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. They took him unto them. I imagine that they brought him into the privacy of their home, and there, with humility and grace, they opened the Scriptures, and they showed Apollos that he didn't quite have the full picture. He's missing some critical components. He needed to be born again, and he needed to begin to preach about the necessity of the new birth. He had the baptism of John, and yet he had missed the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You know, correction is part of the Christian life. It's part of Christian experience. If you're a Christian for long enough, you'll need some correction. Sometimes the Spirit does the correction within the privacy of your heart. He uses the Word of God to prick your heart between you and Him, and He corrects you just between you and Him. But at other times, correction requires an external message, whether it's a husband or a father or a friend or any other messenger. A correcting message is needed and God sends some friend by your way to deliver that correcting message. But the one that does the correcting must always be aware that the, the, the delivery, delivery excuse me, of the message is vital to the receptiveness of the message. Attila and Priscilla could have stood up when, uh, when Apollos, when it was clear that Apollos was preaching wrong doctrine, and they could have said, away with this heretic. Let's get him out of here. That would not have led uh, to a uh, to a likely change in Apollos' belief. It's unlikely that Apollos would have accepted correction. And yet, Attila and Priscilla had the right attitude. They had the humility, they had the grace to bring him into their home, in the privacy of their home, and to open the Scriptures, be patient with him, open the Scriptures, and explain to him that Christ had already come that he was missing some critical components to his message. And may that be a principle that you and I keep in mind when we are sent to correct others, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our children, whether that's our friend. When we are sent to correct others, we ought to keep that in mind. Humility and grace, keep their feelings in mind, and know that if you correct them in public, it's likely not to be received. Not always is it, is it rejected, but it's likely to not be received. But on the other hand, the one who is corrected must have humility to accept the correction. Apollos could have bowed up 
They said, I'm not taking advice from this lowly couple. And they were, in fact, a lowly couple. But, but you, you don't, perhaps the greatest skill, alongside his mastery of the Word, was his ability to receive correction and grow. In fact, you don't become mighty in the Scripture without an ability to receive correction and grow. And how do we know that he received it? Well, verse number 28, or verse number 27, when he was disposed to pass in Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive it, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. So here, Apollos has, he has revised his message. He goes to Corinth, to Greece, which is Achaia. He goes to Greece and Corinth, which is the capital of Greece. And he helped the church in Corinth. In verse number 28, we find that his message has truly been changed. For he mightily convinced the Jews that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. The correction went to heart, and Apollos was a better, more accurate preacher as a result. And you know, you want to enhance your influence for the Lord? You should absolutely refine your skills. You should absolutely refine your ability. You absolutely must be a master, a skillful master of God's Word, of the Scriptures. And no matter, in fact, the role of life that you, uh, that you play, you ought to have a mastery of God's Word. But you want to really be able to enhance your influence for the Lord? Cultivate a humility that enables you to take correction. That's the way that you can enhance your influence. That's exactly what happened here. Apollos accepted the correction and it enhanced his message. He goes on to Corinth and he, he I believe, he becomes the pastor at the Church of Corinth. His influence, his ministry was enhanced from, uh, from this correction, his ability to receive the correction. And on the flip side, you want to guarantee that your influence is handicapped for the rest of your life? Reject correction. Reject correction. How often has pride handicapped a man's growth and his influence? How often has the family gotten out of church because they rejected the message of correction and soon to follow was the influence, the godly influence over their children and they lost their children? How often has confrontation provoked anger and resentment and not humility and repentance? Brothers and sisters, whether the Lord reprove us through the Holy Spirit or whether He reprove us from some messenger, whether it be a father, a husband, a wife, uh, a friend, a pastor, we ought to have the spirit of humility to receive the correction, accept the correction, and change. So the message tonight, consecrate your skills to the Lord. Cultivate your skills for the Lord. Be diligent students of God's Word and have humility to accept correction.